Anyone here has ever been desperate? <laughs> and, and I mean desperate. You know, the, the, the phrase, desperate people do desperate things. How many times, you, don't raise your hand. How many times did those desperate things, you look back and you're like, man, I was dumb. <laughs> and, and, and we do, we hit that moment, and, and it's like something just shuts off. You know, logic, everything. It's, it's just desperation leads people to do things so out of character sometimes that we don't even understand it. We look back and we're like, And we can't logically make sense of it. You know, we, we, we look back and we're like, I knew it was wrong. I knew this. I, I knew it would probably turn out like this. Like, logically, we can put all the things down on the table of like, I knew this. And yet, there I was. Well, I have good news for you. Jesus is Lord of the desperate. Amen. He's not there to make you feel bad about it. He's not there to pile on and let you know how dumb your mistakes were in your desperation. And, and just sometimes he rewards that desperation when we direct it to the right place. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at two people who became so desperate that they were willing to do things that were completely outside of what was accepted. They were willing to take risks. But they directed their desperation to Jesus. And in so doing, they found their answer. They found freedom. They found life. They found healing. Because the definition of desperation, I, I looked it up for this because it's, you know, it's one of those things we know conceptually. <laughs> You know, we know I'm desperate. I mean, we, we just know what it is, but to really define it kind of puts an exclamation on it. Desperation, recklessness arising from despair. Recklessness arising from despair. Now, what is despair? Despair is a loss of hope. Despair is when a person feels they have nothing left to lose. And so when we believe we have nothing left to lose and we behave like it, what does that lead to? Typically nothing good. Typically that is nothing good. But what if in that recklessness we decide to abandon it all to God? Then we've opened the door for something amazing. And if God knows this, do you think there may be times in your life that he will allow you to reach a point of desperation? Because he wants to do a work in you that he knows there's no other way to get this person to this place. They will never be open to it unless I make them so uncomfortable, so desperate for something to change that now everything's on the table. Things that before they'd have turned their nose up at, things before that they wouldn't have even considered, now suddenly they're like, maybe it's not such a bad idea. 
when God gets us to that point, if we go to him, suddenly we're open to truths we never would have been open to before. We're open to God doing things within us and through us and for us and, and around us that we weren't open to before. And so look with me in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. And it says, while he was saying these things, this is Jesus, things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Desperation, recklessness arising from despair. You see, what we have in this story are two desperate people in one moment in time. And as I've, you've heard me say before, I always think it's amazing the intersections in life that happen. This is not by accident. This is God pushing things together in a way that, that he's going to be glorified and, and he can move. But it's our lives are more connected than we realize. You know, it's like the story I told before of the, uh, the, the two auto owners in the entire state of Ohio when nobody owned vehicles. There were only two in the entire state, and they met up at a crossroads and had a wreck. That's a true story. Two people in the entire state owned cars, and they didn't obviously know who had the right-of-way yet. We're connected. It's amazing how God pulls things together that we don't even recognize. And this begins with a ruler, somebody with power, somebody with influence, somebody with means, okay? But both the ruler and the woman were risking everything to do what they did. And, and we can kind of miss that because it's such kind of a short passage we got to stop and think about who are the people involved here and what culture were they in? Because both had been pushed to a point that they felt they had nothing left to lose and were willing to step outside of their comfort zone, look past their doubts, and put all their hope in Jesus. Everything was on the line. So let's look at this for the ruler, okay? It says again, while he was saying these things to him, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. Now let's not miss the picture here. What do we see? A man who is used to having people kneel before him comes and kneels before Jesus. Take that picture as far as you can in your mind, in your right. Okay? Here we have somebody of earthly power who realizes I may have means and power on earth, but this is the one with means and power in heaven. This is the one who truly has power. This is the true ruler. This is the one that's really in charge. 
and he bends his knee before Jesus. Does he do it privately? No, he does it publicly. Now, back in those days, to be a ruler meant what? It meant you were probably somewhat ruthless. It meant you, you had power. It, it meant you knew how to hold on to power. It meant you knew how to convince people around you that you had power. And maintaining power meant you had to maintain that image all the time in public. That's why they would dress the way they did. That's why they had the entourages that they did, because it was to remind all of the little people, don't even think about it. I have power. And what does this guy do? He walks out publicly and kneels before a Jewish rabbi. This is a huge risk for him. Word gets out on this, people are going to be like, oh, he's gone soft. This guy's got nothing. This guy is, you know, he's, he's kneeling down before rabbis. Like, he, he cannot, it may be in the Roman Empire, they're going to be like, this guy can't be trusted anymore. He's now with, with them. He is running a huge risk at his reputation, his authority, and ultimately his livelihood to do this. For him to show desperation publicly was a bad move for a man who was in charge. And yet, he's willing to do it. For him to be desperate enough to go to the controversial person of Jesus publicly would be enough to create a backlash against him that could destroy him. And look, the Roman Empire did not take lightly to people. We're not just talking like, hey, you don't have your job anymore. Go away. He might go to jail. You, you don't know. It all depends on what the Roman Empire might just decide in that moment because that's how justice worked then. They might look at it and say, you're a traitor. Execute him and his family. You see, he is desperate in this moment because he was willing to risk all of that. He didn't care. He did not care. All that mattered to him was getting Jesus to his daughter. He finds Jesus, kneels before him, and says, my daughter has just died. Again, don't lose sight. This isn't is dying, is sick, might die. He uses the past tense. <laughs> She's dead. She just died. But you, come lay your hand on her, she'll live. Let's not lose sight of the faith that this man has. He's desperate, and he's willing to risk this all publicly, but man, he knows. I, I, he, I guess he's been paying attention. He's watched the healings. He's heard the words. The man's been convinced, but he knows in his heart that Jesus can do this. And so my guess is this guy, his daughter, you know, had to have been sick. I doubt that this happened, you know, suddenly. She's maybe been sick, something's going on, and he's, he's spent money on doctors. He's brought in the best. He's brought in everybody, and nobody's been able to stop whatever's going on. And, and he's there, and he's praying. He's like, God, you got to do something. And she dies, and he, something snaps, and he remembers. Jesus heals people, and he's here, and he leaves. Imagine the family. Daughter just died, and he's like, no, no, not acceptable. I do not accept this. And he leaves to go find Jesus. Think of the resolve. Parents, think of the resolve in his mind in this moment. He's like, I, I don't care. I, I don't care if it costs me my job. I don't care if it costs me my life. I don't care if people. Did I, this is unacceptable. He 
He's desperate. He's willing to be reckless. And he goes and finds Jesus, kneels before him. He's, it, all pretenses are gone in this moment. And that is one of the great things about desperation is it will strip a person down to who they are. Good and bad. Good and bad. Too many times we've got to go through the ugly, but then on the other side we can also start to see the good, the, the things that are there that should be there. And in this man, what is there? There is an acknowledgement of truth, there is humility, and there is a resolve that is not going to be broken. There's a reason he's a ruler. And he comes to Jesus and says, you can heal her. In all of his worldly power, he is powerless. But he goes to the one who is truly the ruler of creation. And Jesus says, just gets up and goes with him. So many times there's a discussion in this moment, isn't there? And Jesus is just like, yeah, let's go. I love that. He doesn't mess with this guy. He doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't question him. He doesn't question what he's doing. He, does, he just, yeah, let's go. He gets up and just goes with him. And then on the way, what happens? He's interrupted. This woman shows up. We're going to talk about her in a second. But again, put yourself in this man's shoes in this moment. You think they're walking fast? You know, let's go. We're going. I mean, I, I guarantee this man has tunnel vision. He's pushing people out of the way if they're there. I mean, I've got Jesus. He's coming with me. We're getting to the house. I am, nothing is going to stop me. And then suddenly Jesus says, hey, who touched me? What? And he stops and you're like, oh. <laughs> yes, let's have a conversation. Thank you. And yet the man allows it to happen. We, we don't get any sense that he, you know, that he complains, that it, but you know he's, he's exploding inside. He, he is emotionally like this. Is, he is he's panicked. He's desperate. And now we're having a conversation. <laughs> and Jesus just stops. And when they get through that, in verse 23, it says, When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. When Jesus said she was not dead, but sleeping, and everyone laughed, the stage is now set. The ruler has to make a public decision right now. This is a hard one because common sense, experience, science, life <laughs> says one thing. And what is it? This is over. And he's a ruler. So now you've got all of the, the politicians and everybody around that they're going to make a big deal because they need to have a good showing. So they're fake crying. They're flutes playing. There's this, it's a circus outside now of people pretending to care that this girl is dead. And Jesus shows up at it, and he's like, stop. Everybody just stop. She's not dead. She's not dead, but sleeping. This man is like, I'm pretty sure she was dead. That's why I came to get you. But it says when everybody was put outside, what happened in that moment? The ruler had to tell everybody to get out. In some way, Jesus convinced them, I'm not going in till they're out. 
I don't know what was said. I don't know how, but, but it says when everyone was put out. So that means probably other family. That means people who did care, people who didn't care. There, there had to be this clearing moment where now the ruler, not only has he knelt before Jesus publicly, but now he's got to go against his own people right now. Okay, these are the people in his life. These are his friends. These are his family. This is the people that are close to him. And Jesus makes this statement that on its surface seems ridiculous. And he's got to side with them. Can we side with God when it feels ridiculous? Because you know what? God will do that to us. Okay, he will. It is over and over in scripture. He has taken the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He has chosen the foolish things of this world to proclaim himself, to show his glory. Are we willing to be the fools for Jesus in this world? Are we willing to be laughed at like this man was? They laughed at Jesus. This is a crowd that just laughs at him. They're like, what a moron. Except one person wasn't laughing, and that's the father. And he said, you all need to get out. Out. He's dead. What is this guy, you're not going to really listen to this guy. Get out. And somehow he ushers everybody out of that house. He makes it happen. You see, when we're desperate, we can find a strength and a resolve that we didn't know we had. Sometimes we think we're at the end, and God says, oh, no, you've got a lot more. There's a lot more there. You just, you just haven't wanted it yet. And so he rushes everybody out. And then what? He goes in, takes her by the hand, gets her up. She's healed. No huge fanfare. Just takes her by the hand, heal her, raise her up. She's alive. You see, the ruler put it all on the line publicly and was rewarded for his faith. Jesus raised his daughter back to life because he was desperate. Now we have a second person, and that's the woman who approaches him mid-trip. Also desperate. Verse 20, it says, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. This is such an amazing, there, there is so much packed in this that we don't understand today because our culture is different. The woman, of course, was ritualistically unclean. So touching anybody else made them unclean and was punishable by death. Now, again, 12 years, she's probably seen every doctor she knows. She's tried every folk remedy there is. She's done everything she can do, and she's exasperated. She's exhausted. She, she probably has no resources anymore. I mean, she's just, she's got nothing left. And she hears of Jesus, probably the, the whole, you know, the touched a leper and healed him. And she's like, hey, if he can heal leprosy, he can probably heal me. But how do I get to him? Because in that condition, she's supposed to just even stay away from people, like completely. Don't even be around people because you might make them unclean. So how do you get to Jesus when everybody around you is telling you not to? 
She becomes desperate. And yet, we see her heart in what she does. She's lived with this condition for 12 years. And in desperation, thinks to herself, if I only touch his garment, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. See, she, she doesn't want, she believes this about herself, that she's, that she's somehow unclean and impure. And so she doesn't want to touch him because she doesn't want to cause him to be unclean. This is amazing teacher, a rabbi, that's, and she, she's showing respect for him in this. And yet she's so desperate to get to Jesus that she's finding a creative way to differentiate between if I don't touch him, if I just touch his garment, he's not, maybe, maybe that'll work. I'm, I'm okay. See, and this is called justification, but it's a justification to get to God, to get to Jesus. And she's thought in her mind, okay, I'm not touching him, so I'm not sinning. But his garment's touching him, and he touched me. Maybe I can, I can be healed through that. And she sneaks up on him to do it. Now, I don't know about you, but adults don't sneak very well. You know, and, 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 and we've got this desperation train moving here with the father, and they're, they're blowing through, and you know, she's like, there he is. And, and you know, I mean, she's, she's just trying to get up there, and and she does, and we, we, we have in other, you know, readings of this, there's kind of a crowd, and there are people there pushing them from all sides, and she comes up, and she just, she just touches the hem of his garment, just, just the very edge. And Jesus is like, power went out, whoa, who touched me? And everybody's like, really? <laughs> and they even say, they're like, master, there are people everywhere. You're like, who touched me? And he says, I sense power went out. And he turns, and again, this woman now is, is caught. And it, again, God will force us to make a decision. She didn't do anything wrong. Culturally, yes. With God, no. Sometimes those don't line up, okay? Most of the time, those don't line up. Culturally, she could be in trouble. With God, God's like, oh, no, no, I love that kind of desperation for me. That's what I want from my people. And so Jesus turns and he's like, one, it says, who touched me? And then she tells here, he just looks at her and says, your faith's made you well. He, he just, Jesus turned his here and said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Like no condemnation, no, no shame, no, man, that was a bold move. You get away with it this time. You get one. You know, none of that. We, we get none of that. He just says, take heart. Your faith has made you well. Now, it's not known a lot of times the touching of the hem of the garment like that was what students who were being accepted by a rabbi to follow them, that's what they would do to show that, yes, I'm, I'm now your follower. And they would go up and touch the hem of their garment, and that was them pledging themselves to that rabbi to follow their teaching and learn from them. See, she took what she knew in her culture and used it to get to God because God always provides a way. There's always a way. And so this woman, again, was stuck with an impossible decision and yet found a way to make it happen. 
She had to take a risk. She's risking her life in that moment to get to Jesus. Do not underestimate. Do, don't discount that of how badly this could have gone for her in the trip to wherever she was to get to Jesus. She takes that risk. She's desperate for healing. She sees in Jesus the one who can heal her, and she is not letting anything get in her way. And you know what, friends? We have to be that desperate for God in our lives. And I'm not talking about just a moment where things go bad. Look, we've all had moments where we're like, okay, God, I, you know, I'm at my end, and, and we are desperate. We're like, God, I need a miracle. I need something to happen. I, I can't take anymore. This happened, or we're heartbroken, or, or some tragic thing happens in our life that suddenly it just knocks the wind out of us, and we don't know how we're going on. I don't mean this to be trite, but it's easy to be desperate in those moments. That's what those moments do to us. They bring us to our knees. Are we still just as desperate to know and serve God when things are going well? You see, because that's what Peter did. Peter had the miraculous catch of fish. And then it's like, cool, I will walk away from all of it because I found the Messiah. I will leave all of it. And so did his brother, so did John, and so did James. You see, there's, there's something within us that was created only for God. And, and I mean that. There is, we were created in his image. We were created to serve him, to know him, to love him, and be loved by him. Which means there is a language, a spiritual, eternal, powerful language that God speaks, that, that we speak with him that, that only he can speak with us. Only him. You know, so many years theologians have called it the God-shaped hole in our spirit, in, in our heart, and it, whatever you want to call it. We were made for him. And only he can satisfy that longing. Now, humanity will try everything under the sun but God to fill that. And I mean that. We will try literally everything before admitting that we need God. Listen to these psalms. They're, they're familiar, but I want you to really listen to what it's saying in Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? What is this? This is saying there's something deep inside of me that longs, that needs God in my life. And the psalmist freely writes it and admits it. How many of you have ever been so thirsty that, you know, any liquid just about would have done? You know, you're just dying and, and you're just like, no, I have to get water. It starts to consume you. You know, not just, oh, I need a drink, but, you know, you've been out walking somewhere and it's hot and you've been without water and it's like, no, I'm I'm about to drink a gallon jug when I get home. I need water. That's what the psalmist is saying here. And he's like, the deer, you know, like they, they can get caught out in the wilderness, in the heat, in the sun, and they're looking for that water. Are we longing for God like that? Are we reading our scripture longing for God like that? Or are we just looking for quick answers to the simple problems of life? And not that it's bad to look for answers, but sometimes we need to come to Scripture with a little bit more of 
you know what, I'm diving into the eternal here and I really, God, I want to know you. I want to know the deep things of God. I want to know you like I've never known you before. Psalm 63.1, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh <laughs> faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. See, they are painting a picture of desperation here. That if we don't, if they don't find God, they're ruined. If God doesn't answer, they'll die. My soul thirsts for you and longs for you. And I fear sometimes we turn that longing and, and we just cover it with other things and we become satisfied with things in this world that they don't answer that. They just numb it. Because the scripture tells us that by ungodly deeds, we can suppress the truth. And so we forget that connection to God. We forget that upward call to God that is where we truly find ourselves. We forget who we are in Christ. And we start to settle for worldly things to satisfy us. And sin is fun for a season, but it always exacts a price. Only God can truly give life. Because I believe all of humanity longs for God. All of humanity. The first sin was the result in believing that we could exist apart from God. Think about that. First sin was just believing that we could somehow be independent of God. He told them, you'll be like God. And we thought, cool, I want to be like God, which means what? Independent of God, that I can be his equal. We're not his equal. In no universe, in no setting, will we ever be his equal. Could we ever be his equal? We are the creation. He is the creator. We, we will never on our best day even kind of represent who he is and what he can do. And it's good for us to remember that all the time. Remind ourselves today. Just say it to yourself. You're God. I'm not. And I'm going to quit applying for the job because it's already been filled and I'm sorely underqualified. Just remind yourself of that daily you'll be amazed at how much it actually kind of clears things up sometimes. It's like, you know, I don't get to call the shots here. And, and so if we have that brokenness within us that we think we can live independent of him and yet we're created to exist in relationship with him, we can see what the problem is, right? We want to exist apart from him, yet we can't exist apart from him. And what we have to do is bring ourselves to that place where we finally are convinced at the deepest parts of our heart that, okay, no, I need God. Though everything else in the world fade away, I need God. It, it, the heaven and earth itself can disappear at the end of the day. I need God more than I need air. I need God. And when we get to that point, that kind of desperation to God, that's when we're finally willing to change the way we see, think, feel, and act. That's when we become open 
to the alternatives that God places in our lives and the possibilities we once sneered at. That's when we become content with being forgiven and not needing you know, some kind of name and lights or, or some kind of recognition. We don't need those things because we found God and we found what we needed. That's what opens us to be able to love other people because we finally know what true love is because we found it in God. And so God knows us well enough to know that sometimes he's got to lead us to a place of desperation. And it's not God being mean. It's actually God doing the most loving thing he could do. And that is pulling the roof off of your fake house, letting the weather in so that we say, gee, God, this is uncomfortable. What's going on? I thought my world was secure and suddenly it's not. And in that desperation, we're, a, we're willing to admit things. We're willing to admit our failures. We're willing to admit our sin. We're willing to, you know, I mean, it, it is. It's what I call the bargaining with God. Now, here's the thing. God knows when our bargaining is sincere and when it's not. The insincere bargaining is, God, if you'll do this, then I will never. No, it, we know. Just stop. The sincere bargaining is, God, if you will. I'm, I'm here. I will give myself to you. I, I will follow you. Because I believe you can't. You're what I need. And so, God, I'm not asking you to fix my life. I'm, I'm just asking you to fix me. I'm just offering myself to you. Will you do that? That's when God says, oh, yeah, I'm in. Let's do this. You see, God has to lead us to that place of desperation sometimes. Listen to Psalm 143, 1 through 6. It says, hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. Think he's desperate? See, that's what I love about the Psalms is they're so honest. This guy isn't like, oh, no, it'll be okay. He's like, I'm, I'm dead, God. I got nothing. My, my soul is fainting. My body is fainting. My enemies have won. My life is a wreck right now, God. You know, those are some of the most powerful prayers you'll ever have. God, I'm a wreck. I don't have it figured out, God. I am desperate for you because nothing else works. I got nothing. And yet, what does he say? He says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. You know who this reminds me of? This could almost be written by the prodigal son. What did he do? He remembered. He started thinking of the days of old. And he's like, you know, dad was not. I thought it was awful then, but you know, I look back and he, his servants even lead a pretty good life. I think I'll go back. You see, once we start entering back into the truth with God, amazing things happen. But as long as we think and believe something else, someone else, or someplace else will provide what our soul longs for, we won't be desperate enough to cast it all aside and seek God. And that's the hard truth of so long as we believe anything else will provide what God can provide, we'll, we'll try that first. 
We'll go there first. And we're like, well, let's let, you know, I'm gonna, how does that ever turn out? It never works out. Every person I talk to that, that does that, and look, we've all done it. We all will say, man, I wasted some time. I wasted some energy. I wasted some life on this. And what do we always say? I wish I could have it back. You know, what's the old saying? I wish I knew then what I know now. You know why that is? Because we became finally desperate enough to learn the truth. And when we admitted the truth, it freed us from that moment, freed us from that way of thinking, and opened a new door of possibility to us. And guess what? God was right there waiting. He said, I've been here the whole time. I've been with you the whole time. I just, we, we had to take a little detour. I got you through it, but are you ready to move forward? Because God is always there ready to hear us. And, and so I just want to ask, ask yourself this question. How desperate am I? What are you willing to change for God? And I know this sounds bad, but imagine the thing in your life that you think you possibly couldn't live without. And then give that to God and say, you know what? If my worst fear came true, God would still be there on the other side of it. And some, I don't know how, and I'm not saying we want it to happen. I'm not glorifying, but I'm saying somehow we would figure out how to listen to God on the other side of that and go on with life. Would we be changed? Oh, absolutely. We, we'd leave a scar, all of that. I'm not you know, downplaying any of it. But those are the things we've got to look at. What idols do we set up in our life that we think that somehow define our lives? When God says, oh, no, 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 that doesn't define you. That's just a tool in your life. That's, that's a part of your life, but who you are, let me define you. Because only God can truly define You know what the main difference between the Pharisees and the ruler and the woman are? The Pharisees weren't desperate and the ruler and the women were, and the woman was. The Pharisees saw the miracles. They saw it. They heard it. They heard the teaching. They heard the truth. They saw the truth. And yet, what did they do? They sneered at it and were offended by it. People who were desperate was like, that's my guy right there. I see the miracles and I need a miracle. That's where I'm going. He has what I need. He is who I need. See, that's the difference in desperation. The Pharisees weren't desperate. They were. The Pharisees were satisfied with themselves while the ruler and the woman were willing to throw away their lives they knew in order to have a chance at the life offered by Jesus. They were willing. The Pharisees weren't. And so with the idea of desperation in mind, I want you to think on these words of Jesus. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That promise gets a lot more powerful, doesn't it? When we think about what he's saying here, he's saying, if you are desperate for God, you're going to find exactly what you need. You will find. God's not going to play games with this. He will not play games with your heart in this. He won't play games with your faith. He says, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. And then he makes this promise in Matthew 7. He says, ask, 
and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God has said, I'm, I'm ready. I'm here. I will, I will fill that, that desire for, that, that hunger for, for righteousness. I will fill that. If you ask me, I will give to you. If you seek me, you will find me. If you knock on my door, I will open. God is not going to turn anyone away who comes to him genuinely in faith. Nobody will be turned away. That road may be more difficult than we thought, but you will not be turned away. And so the offer's there. The promise of good things is there. The trick is that we have to want it more than we want anything else. That's what it means to be desperate. How reckless are you willing to get to know the truth? In your life, how far are you willing to go? And when I say how far are you willing to go, how much sin in your own life are you willing to admit to clear the path to get to Jesus? You see, because we have to repent in order to come to God. And so if we're not willing to acknowledge sin in our own hearts, then he's like, oh, you're not that desperate yet. But when we are, we find God. And lest we think this is all just, okay, God's just always going to accept. Look, he knows when we're playing games with him. He knows when we're truly desperate for him and when we're desperate for the benefits of him. And there is a difference. And here's the warning he gave us in Matthew 10. I'm going to close with this. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. See, he says, you've got to be desperate. You have to reach that point of desperation in your faith that you say, God, I want you and nothing else, and I will not settle for anything less. No cheap substitutes, no worldly pleasure, nothing will take the place. Not even intellectual agreement. We get stuck there sometimes. We like to intellectually agree with scripture but not live it. That's not enough. He says you got to be desperate for him. Now the great news in that and the good news is that the price has been paid to make that possible. See he's not saying figure it out. What is he saying? He's saying be desperate enough to come to me. I will fill you. And why is that possible? Because Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross. That's why it's possible. Because he gave us grace and forgave us our sins that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God is telling us he is there and he is ready. And so together today we want to acknowledge that yes, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That we are dependent on him in all things. And that we acknowledge that this isn't about who we are. It's about who he is and what he did for us. And what he did was give, give his life on the cross. 
And when he explained what that meant, the night before his crucifixion, he met with his disciples, whom he called his friends. And he took the bread and he said, this bread is my body. It shall be broken for you. And after he took the bread, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant. It shall be given for you. And Jesus taught us, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Because together we have to confess as a center point of all that we believe that nothing we do matters unless we go through the cross. That it is only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that we have salvation, that we have righteousness, that our life even has meaning. But when we find ourselves in him, then we become a part of his body and we're united together in spirit and in kingdom and purpose and mission and in love. And we do this together until he returns. And so together we proclaim his death, we proclaim his lordship, and we proclaim his eventual return as together we eat the bread. And together we drink of the cup. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day. God, thank you that you have shown us that, God, when we are desperate for you, you are the loving Father with your arms open wide, ready to receive us. That, God, we can bring all of our hurt, all of our fear, all of our pain, all of our sorrow, all of our failures to you as our Father, and you will wipe them clean, heal us, receive us in, back into your family, set us at your table for all eternity. God, thank you for giving us a spot. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, God. We cannot say thank you enough for what you did for us on the cross. But God, together we, we proclaim, Lord Jesus, together we proclaim that you are Lord. That there is no name above the name of Jesus Christ. And together we want to honor you by serving your kingdom by increasing your fame and your renown and walking in your ways. God, it's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.